I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good night, guys. And we're very lucky today to be at Featherdale Wildlife Park with the Director of Life Sciences, Chad Staples. G'day, mate. How are you? Good. Yeah, good, mate. Thanks for having us here. Oh, my pleasure. We've had a bit of a wander around this morning, and it's a beautiful spot. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an amazing spot. Well, it gets in your blood. We only sit on about seven acres, but it's one of those things, if you're passionate about wildlife, you could spend days just wandering. You've got a real diversity of animals here, mate, too. Yeah, absolutely. So we like to say it's the, the largest collection of Australian animals in the world. But we try, you know, when we say largest, it's not so many about the total count, even though it's huge, but it's that depth in the collection. So you're talking about 270 different species. When you look at some of the aviaries, they're real habitat aviaries, and you see that interaction between different species which is just intoxicating to sit there and watch yeah i also noticed when we were looking at the owls i've got <laughs> i've got a boo book out you've got i think just about every owl in australia <laughs> well and it's been a long time passion project for Featherdale. so there were a lot of the very first breedings that were ever done here i mean you i'm sure you noticed the powerful owls so that's the only <laughs> breeding pair in the country so we got the first egg last year it was unfortunately infertile but they're a relatively new pair so fingers crossed this year we'll get one step closer. They're an impressive bird, biggest owl in Australia. Oh, that's, bird, that's, that's the first time I've seen one, and yeah, that, that's an impressive owl. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of bird there. Mm. It's not a competition, but mine's the smallest <laughs> owl in Australia. <laughs> is, yeah. Does that tell you anything? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, you've got a lot of koalas, mate. It's one of the things that I noticed when I, when I arrived. Yeah, and again, it's, it's something that Featherdale's, I guess, hung its hat on. Yeah. Uh, we do see a lot of international visitors here at Featherdale. It is a big part of our business. So when people travel to Sydney in particular and they go to see the Blue Mountains, it normally involves a trip to Featherdale as well. They are Australia's icon. There are people that come to our country just to see the koala and we really like to show them in their natural habitats here at Featherdale. So we need to keep large numbers because we obviously look at uh keeping the species in long arcs you know you can you've got to work in 10 year cycles so without a big gene pool you you become bottlenecked far too quickly it's really interesting where where i come from in adelaide hills there's lots of koalas and i live yep. near kangaroo island where there's probably too, too many. many yeah yep. um and yet here it's a higher rainfall uh, area over a vast area of you know forested land yep. why, why have the koalas had such a hard time here in new south wales it's our fault you know if you look back historically koalas were hunted it's one of those things that people don't even really believe is true but you know there were millions of them killed and uh, sent back to back to Europe as pelts and they're not an animal that breeds quickly so you go and make a huge dint in a population like that and it can take forever to come back if if it will and unfortunately we do have a lot of stresses here in Sydney and especially the growth of Western Sydney with the, the sprawl of urbanisation, that we just keep putting pressure on them and making it harder. I mean, we often talk about the growing human population. Yep. Is, that, is that something that's even more apparent over here in um, the East Coast? Or? Oh, for sure. And I think you've only got to look at the rate of extinction in Australia and I guess even the, um, the species that, if not extinct, that are becoming so we're really seeing it far worse on the east coast because that's obviously where everyone in australia likes to come and live 
and it's a beautiful part of the world too. A lot of buses out the front. Yep. So you're probably pretty close to Sydney. Well, what works very well geographically for Featherdale is we're about halfway between the city and the Blue Mountains. So if your international visitors are heading that way, this makes a great stopping point to then see all those animals that you should have seen in the Blue Mountains, but are hard to spot when you arrive on a bus. Do you do a schools program here? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Featherdale's been involved for, with school education for decades, and I think that's part of the wonderful thing, that it's still in the New South Wales syllabus to teach young kids about Australian animals. So it's a very easy excursion for, you know, we probably look more around that kindy first, second class is, you know, our real bread and butter. And I love it. I even did the, I even taught the education department for about three years and I just loved it because you're really getting kids to fall in love with animals. And, you know, once they have that, I think they'll, they'll carry that through forever. Yeah, that's the hope, isn't it? We, we often talk about that, the role that zoos play and wildlife demonstrators play. And even even a kid having a pet lizard, we've often talked about, you know, a kid's got a bearded dragon, the grandma buys them a reptile encyclopedia and one thing leads to another. And I think that's where a lot of kids start now with, with that base thing. But a, a lot of people do still have the impression that zoos are, are, are sort of concrete jungles. Um, but, yeah, we spend a lot of our time telling people that they're not like that anymore yeah they did used to be but they're not like that anymore absolutely it's one of my absolute passions is to you know it almost feels like zoo's a dirty word sometimes and that's hard because it's such an enjoyable place to come like it's it's all i do in my holidays my working life in everything is to not only enjoy this zoo but zoos all around the world because they are just amazing places and I think especially with young kids, it's probably the greatest way that they can learn empathy. You know, to surround them with animals. Often we don't have the pets as much at home anymore, but, you know, for them to sort of start to see the world through an animal's eyes and start to feel that, and then you start to make decisions that bring them, you know, that would affect them, that you you can really change things. I noticed on the way in you had, like, uh, plastic cups for kids to use Mm -hmm. and and a bin to put them in. Yep. So, so obviously they get cleaned and used again. Is that a, that's a uh, initiative for um, to stop single-use plastics? Uh, it, it's a multi-purpose thing. It, it, it's certainly so that it's not a throwaway item. Absolutely. And you know, when you then start to look at other options that you can for feeding animals, you know, it, you know, for a long time it was paper bags or ice cream cones or or these sort of things, which are just not healthy for the animals. So we do like to use it as a multi-pronged sort of approach and absolutely part of it is that you know, these things don't have to be thrown away. You can clean it and use it again and again and again. That's awesome. Those paddy melons are beautiful. We've, we're raising a little baby redneck paddy melon at the moment. They, yeah, right. they make a beautiful uh, animal for people to come up and hand feed and pet, don't they? And it's one of the reasons why it's the first macropod enclosure you walk into because, again, if you're from overseas and if you were to walk into an eastern grey enclosure straight away, it could be a bit daunting. They are quite a large, impressive animal, whereas at least with the paddy melons, they're a bit more of a manageable size and an easy first step to introduce you to an Australian animal. And they genuinely seek out people. They have plenty of room to sort of get away if they want to, you know, shelters and just standoff barriers, but they're choosing to be out for that interaction, even if food isn't involved. So I think it's a very special thing to watch. Yeah, they're they're quite social, aren't they? It's great. Um, How about these sounds? I'm sure the listeners can hear all these birds that are around us at the moment. And it's a big thing, and, you know, I'm obviously very pro-zoos and, you know, good zoos, but it's a real shame that 
the bird collections around the world are what is diminishing. It's a very difficult one because if you talk to a visitor that has been to a zoo, if they were to fill out a form and say, what was their favourite animal or why did they come, birds would very rarely make it onto that list. But if you actually did a time in motion study on visitors' time spent at enclosures, they would spend more time in front of the aviaries. There's all that colour, that noise, just the movement and, and spectacle that happens within an aviary where... Again, you've got all these mixed species interacting in different ways and it's an absolute drama unfolding in front of you. But it's a shame. No no one ticks that box, which then gives zoos the feeling that we need to increase aviaries. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it used to be once upon a time that there were a lot of people enthusiastic about birds. And yet, I mean, I I keep reptiles and birds, love them both, but I mean, birds, no offence, Steve, seem to do a lot more than reptiles. Oh, 100%. You know, if you're just looking from a... From Steve, a, come back, Steve. I've gone. <laughs> I'm out. For sure, from a from a visitor's perspective, you know, from sun up to sundown, birds don't stop. You know, it, it's high energy, it's high activity, lots of feeding, lots of socialisation, lots of noise, lots of movement. It's a spectacle, and I think it makes it a wonderful addition to a zoo. I love your coastal bird exhibit, how you've got... You're just looking over there at these gang of... Pelicans. <laughs> the pelicans, right. when you get that close to them, are so impressive. They sure are. Um, a bit yep. scary, but really impressive. And yeah, that was great. Well, it, it is something that we we pride ourselves on at Featherdale is making things as interactive as possible. So even if you can't touch everything, because obviously that's not real, you feel like you could. And the animal chooses to be in such close proximity with a visitor that. You know, you're not just looking at them, but you're smelling them, you're hearing them, you feel like you're right there involved in their their day. And I think it's a very special thing. So we, we really try hard to encourage that immersion, I guess, at Featherdale. I think it's quite impressive, like, when you walk around, we've just had a quick walk around, we're going to get stuck in after this. Um, but but when you walk around and you've got that exhibit, and you say, like, you struggle with space a bit here. Yep. Um, but when you get that exhibit, it's a great big exhibit, um, you know, really nice waterways in there. And you go down to the croc, and the croc's got a nice big pan with, mm-hmm. with a couple of ponds in there and the reptile house, big enclosures in the reptile house. I think you're doing a great job. The amount of species that you've got in this relatively small area for a zoo yep. it's pretty amazing. Well, thank you. It is a constant challenge because we are obviously landlocked. You know, Western Sydney exploded around us when we started 47 years ago. And you're constantly trying to make things better for the species you keep and refining the collection and adding to it in some ways. But yeah, it does make it hard because we can't invent more land. The um, Goodfellows tree kangaroos. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. cool, isn't yeah. it? Possibly the, yeah, the most Sully. impressive coming here and seeing that. That was awesome, yeah. They're special. You know, you, you can watch them and it, it's hard to pinpoint what you think they are exactly because the structure of the animal shouldn't allow them to do what they do the fact that they've still got those macropod feet yet they can climb is just very interesting to watch very very powerful shoulders so they pull themselves up very easily but they honestly do feel like a cross between a koala and a kangaroo sometimes yeah it's funny isn't it no prehensile tail and they, they manage. Oh, don't they ever? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does, any, does anyone keep the native tree kangaroos that's not in Queensland? Are they something that has ever come out of that state? Yeah, there are a few. It, it, they are in small numbers because if you can imagine, most of the ones that are in care are for a reason. So it's often rehabilitation. So obviously the main goal with rehabilitation is to care for the animal until it can go back. 
a lot of the ones that are now kept in captivity are species that couldn't go back and then obviously the subsequent generations but there are a few and it is becoming uh, I guess more of them now as, as you would hope. Yeah that's great a, a lot are coming in uh, that have lost their vision. Yeah it's very common yeah it, and it's a strange one they don't really exactly know the correlation because a lot of them are uh, car accidents or attacks of some sort but they also have the secondary symptoms of uh, eyesight loss which is not something they've figured out quite yet. Now, you guys are involved in uh, breeding brush-tailed rock wallabies. Yeah. Well, we're, right at this moment, we're involved with two Saving Our Species projects, which are really good because anything that, I guess, is a federal government program, you at least hope has an outcome attached to it. So the brush-tailed rock wallabies in particular, it means that at least 50% of the joeys born at Featherdale will be released. And that is a very important outcome all the work that goes in from day to day to get that joey into the pouch and then hopefully out to know that it will actually one day go back into a wild population to strengthen it is huge the other one is the uh, plains wanderer now it's probably a bird that you know most people have never heard of it's not a i guess a pin-up bird it almost looks like a, a quail but it's been highlighted as the most important bird in our country for saving and the fourth most important in the world because of where it sits in the biodiversity tree. So it's again another really important species that we can't even display to the public. We have to keep it off display and put all our work in just to hopefully learn a little bit more about them and breed from them in order to release. At a very elusive bird, part of a two-week survey I was doing the reptiles um, when Bush Heritage bought Bulkamata Station. Right. And we went out looking for Plains Wanderers. And at one point we all got very excited <laughs> until Nick Burke said, that's an inland dotter. <laughs> okay, keep driving. <laughs> Yeah. So I've never seen one to this day. Yeah, what a, what a weak story that was. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess it shows that even when you were going with the experts looking for them in their habitat and you couldn't come across them, it shows at what sort of stage they are. So we have a pair down there, so you can then imagine anything that we can produce from them is just gold. That's a great thing. I mean, not just the education and awareness and the, the connecting of people with you know the environment and nature and animals, that you, you've got the time to, to do that kind of work. That's well, I think it's important. I, I think uh, zoos obviously have got a, a lot of requirements, you know, where conservation is always going, well, should always be a, a real function of zoos. There's a real role that zoos can play in true conservation because we have to be involved in any sort of breeding programs in order to get numbers back up. There's no other way to do it. We obviously can't do anything about the habitat loss and destruction. You know, that, that falls on government. But we can certainly be called into play when it comes to breeding. But I also think that that doesn't have to be the only thing we do. There's, there's still a real element of enjoyment and entertainment with visitors coming to a zoo. And I almost feel like we, we became frightened to admit that a zoo can just be a nice place to visit and interact with animals that you, know, you don't get to see every day. It's, it is important, isn't it? You've, you've got to make it fun and engaging. and Yeah. yeah. But I think by setting up a, a, a really good enclosure that is allowing an animal to do what it would naturally do to display all of its behaviours and its functions in life, that is what people will enjoy, is watching them do what they do. Mate, how did you get into this line of work? Uh, so I've been here at Featherdale's coming up to 23 years. So it was basically straight out of high school. I always had... 
I guess, a love of animals, as you would, as most people that sort of get into this would say they do, but I never thought it was a possibility. So virtually, straight out of high school, I tried a couple of other things and just didn't like it. It wasn't my thing. I needed a passion and was lucky enough to sort of get an interview and then from there it just exploded and I, ne- I never left. What's been some of the highlights throughout your career, mate? Oh gosh, that's a that's a good one. Some of the firsts that we've been involved with and some of those projects that you just never quite knew what the outcome was going to be. So breeding cassowaries for the first time was a real real one that I loved. So you'd know Steve McKechnie. <laughs> Absolutely. We've <laughs> yeah, we've uh, swapped many stories about what to do with with eggs. Um because one of the things that we sort of had to learn was being in Sydney, obviously this isn't where cassowaries naturally breed. So the temperatures here when the eggs are being laid are far lower than they should be in North Queensland. So one of the things that I had to learn how to do was to collect the eggs when they were laid and to keep them in essentially uh, suspended animation. And I had to put painted emu eggs onto a nest to get the male to start sitting. And then once he would start sitting tight enough on four dummy eggs, move the real ones back under him. Because the males really won't start to sit until there's four eggs. How they count to four, I, I don't know. They've only got three toes, so it's not that. <laughs> but once they start sitting tight on four eggs, then we have to do a bit of a switch where we get the real ones back under him. Because obviously, you know, as great as artificial incubation is and we've, we can do amazing things, there's nothing better than Dad doing it. So we get them back under, but it was a real challenge with learning how to take them, store them, and get them back at the right time and still have the, the success we've had. So your cassowaries, the dad does the work, same with emus. Yep. How do you hold those eggs? In the suspended yes. animation? So up in our cool room, I set up a incubator that doesn't get over 10 degrees. And so basically, if you can keep the egg you know, between 8 and about 12 degrees... You can very safely have them there for around 10 days without any problem with them starting the incubation process. And so that's just the the tricky point, is that depending on how many days are in between the laying, it can stretch to beyond 10 days. So quite often that first egg that was laid will have to be artificially incubated all the way through because we haven't been able to get it back under dad, but... And, I mean, you're talking about a bird that could potentially kill you, so doing that, that swap of eggs is <laughs> dangerous. Um, everything about cassowaries, even getting them together because they could kill each other is dangerous. So those sort of successes, you know, if I sort of look back on it, were, were big ones because, again, it, it takes so long. You know, the, the breeding female we had, we got in as a chick. So not only, you know, we, we started from her at that age, she had to get to about, I think she was eight when she laid her first egg. And then you have to be able to get her then with a with a boy. And then you have to get the eggs to hatch and raise those chicks. So it's a huge project. So obviously those those chicks, when they then grow into um, full-grown birds, like that's a huge one. So that cassowary that you saw when you very first walked in the park um, where the paddy melons are, that was the first one we ever successfully hatched at Feather. So she hatched in 2005. And that's around 10 years for them to get... To that point where they can breed. Getting an adult to breeding and then getting adults from them. That's right. That's huge for a bird. And so, I mean, that's what you've got to... I mean, cassowaries can easily live to be 60 or 70. So you've you've got to look at that cycle. And I guess that's the real enjoyment with with being a keeper. 
you know, it, it, it's got to be longer than a year. It's got to be longer than a season. Quite often with these species, if you're not looking at it as a five, ten-year goal, then you're not going to have the patience for it. And just to go the opposite to that, do you breed any desigurids? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so one of my absolute passions is tiger quolls, or spotted-tailed quolls. If I was honest, I don't think I even knew they existed before I started here, but something about them just grabbed me, and I, I really focused on them from, from quite a young age. So I, I just love them. And, yeah, that, that's the absolute opposite, isn't it, that if you take your, your watch off them for a year, you can lose them. You know, you need to be uh, big numbers and big movements and watching your genetics and being very conscious of what you're breeding and who goes with who, and you can never take your eyes off it or, or it'll fall over. So yeah, the absolute opposite of the castles. I love tiger quals too. We just had um, Dr. David Peacock on the show, and he was right. the guy responsible for putting, well, it was his idea to put the western quals back into the Flinders Ranges yep. and get back into the wild. And he's, he's now trying to get some uh, support to put tiger quals back onto Kangaroo Island. But they were there when uh, the Europeans arrived. Yeah, wow. So um, there's no foxes on the island, yep. and they're trying to make it cat-free. So it's, pretty, yeah. it's a pretty exciting project, and let's hope that goes ahead. Oh, that'd be amazing. Just to see any of those top predators being back into their, nat- their natural ecosystem is, is very exciting because you get them back in and it fixes everything. I just want to talk about the Grampians for a minute. Sure. Tiger quals were rediscovered there recently, well, a few years back. Yep. Um, it's pretty exciting. Brush-tailed rock wallabies, are they still in the Grampians? It's interesting with brush tails because they're so isolated now. There's a bunch of different subspecies. So, yes, but they're not the ones that we're holding here. Ours are obviously the New South Wales subspecies. Yeah, different subspecies. Do you breed any of the smaller marsupials? So at different times we have. Obviously, you'd love to be involved in every project, but it's just not possible. But, you know, at different times we've done things like the anikinus and oh, have you? things like that. So absolutely. So again, if you're talking about something that you can't take your eyes off for a moment, because if you miss a breeding season, they're done. Um, absolutely, we have been, but there's nothing that small here at the moment. One of the smallest that we focus on is still bilbies. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't been over to the bilbies. Yep. Yeah, do you keep many of those? No, we've got relatively small numbers because we have one on display enclosure and one off. So the way that we've uh, said that we'll work with the, the program, you know, because it's very important, is that anything that they need us to hold, to breed, or uh, older animals, or even sitting on males until they're useful, will be involved any way that they need. So at the moment, uh, we're, we are in a breeding phase, but we certainly don't mind if we then have to keep males for a season or females for a season just to make sure that there's spaces and i've seen one of my favorite animals and that's the long-nosed potteroos yeah right. they're just adorable I mean, if you first see them you just kind of got it's a bit of a rat thing you know there's so many marsupials i don't care about that one but when you yeah. spend time with those guys for the english listeners the wombles the wombles yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, that's right they're quite endearing the long-nosed potteroos yeah well they certainly are and i guess that's one of the things that i love about this place is as we were talking about the diversity, if you do just stop and watch, there is, there's virtually no exhibit here that's only a single species, except for when you start talking about tiger quolls and things that don't play well with others. <laughs> that we really do as much as possible have those species interactions happening right in front of people, and I think that way you do get to see the animals display what they would normally do. So, 
the reptile um, enclosures, mate, they were impeccable. Yeah, we were really impressed with that. Yeah. Thank you. The scrub python enclosure is just amazing. That's really stunning. Yeah, well, rainforest exhibits can always look pretty cool, mm. nice and colourful and dense and things, but... Yeah, she's a beautiful snake. Yeah. To handle? <laughs> no, not to handle. No. <laughs> yep. As you, as with most of those bird eaters, they bite at everything. Sounds familiar. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but no, no it was good. good. Yeah, it was good. Good in the in the reptile department. We're going to go back there. But that was definitely nice. I guess down there, we we really try to again, sort of talking about a lot of our visitors being international. They come with a lot of preconceived ideas of what Australia is like so everything can kill you and everything's huge and dangerous and for that reason there are a few of those species that we keep down there but I guess to show that they aren't as scary as what people imagine so you've got to have your inland taipans but I can't think of a quieter more gentle a leopard that we have in Australia and so I think it's really interesting to be able to sort of talk about that when people are here. Mm. But only hurt when they bite. Yeah. Mm. Otherwise they're fine. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Got any projects coming up that you're allowed to talk about? Saving our species are the biggest, obviously. And, you know, financially and effort-wise, it's where a lot of our work goes into. But, you know, we would love to be involved in, in more, but it is difficult, obviously, because you can never do it alone. Um, any of these projects, and as I said government is so so important you know a, a zoo can't go and decide to release an animal just because they think it would be cool or or they figure that there's no predators or it would be safe for them to be there we have to work with government because unfortunately especially in australia so much of the loss of species is due to habitat destruction or um, the misuse or you know creating islands of habitat instead of having having it joined so now, something that we would love to be involved with was, would be seeing koalas back into their native habitat in the region where we sit here today. So where Featherdale sits is, uh, it, its Aboriginal name is Bungarabi, and that name comes as uh, the creek line of cockatoos. So again, we just really love to own that name and sort of really talk about Featherdale being the heart of Bungarabi because, as you can see, we've just got cockatoos everywhere. You know, we're involved in in breeding the ones that should be here you know we had our first glossy black cockatoo chick this year so we're very focused on that but we would really love to see koalas naturally back in in this area when you start talking about you know that you just don't see them obviously we have them in the blue mountains we have a very isolated little pocket of uh, koalas in Campbelltown which are under huge stresses you know, we have had some very successful programs where various governments have dedicated green space out here in Western Sydney, but we would just love to see that green space become something more, and how awesome would it be if we could be releasing koalas back in there one day? So, look, is it a project? No, not yet, but gosh, I'd love for it to be. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? What, what do you think local council could do to support that? Local council is wonderful. We we have a great relationship with Blacktown Council because I, I think we see how important we are for each other. Featherdale being here 47 years, we've really grown up with Western Sydney. You know, it was you know decades ago, no one went to Western Sydney. It was it was never talked about by politicians. That it wasn't important. You know, if you were this side of the Harbour Bridge, it didn't matter. Whereas that's very different now. This is the fastest growing region in Australia and it it is important so I think we've been very lucky that Blacktown Council has always seen us as a 
a real draw card to the region. It's uh, it's a fantastic place for families, and it's something to really for them to hang their hats on as good work being done in the region. But I guess unfortunately, when you start talking about uh, habitat, it goes beyond local council. You know, you, you're talking state and you're talking federal. Just to change the subject, <laughs> just think of it when you mentioned cockatoos. Driving out of Gosford on the way here. Whoa, yeah, yeah. this was strange. <laughs> yeah. Um, what were they, Steve? Four, four uh, blue and gold macaws. Macaws. <laughs> flew over. <laughs> flew overhead. Yeah. So there's a, there's a very large private collection in that region and they fly them. Okay. So no, they're not wild. They were heading back to where they live. But at different times, you can see a lot more than four up there, that's for sure. Yeah, wow. That, but, yeah, it's, uh, where are we? <laughs> they shouldn't yeah. be there. It is, it is an interesting We thought one. we'd taken a wrong turn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what happened? Uh, yeah, it was quite. It was awesome to see them fly in. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty cool. It must shock a lot of people. Yeah. And as long as they don't stay in the wild or spread disease no, and, and like and that, I mean, there's what a, an awesome It is done do. very well. Yeah. You know, it's... It, it's a very vast collection of exotic parrots that are kept and, and part of that is that they've been trained and conditioned to be able to fly. And they just and, and they back. come back. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. That's awesome. I'd worry about, like, do you get wedge-tailed eagles around here? Or? Well, up and, there, absolutely you would. Yeah, wow. There's a lot of predators. Because <laughs> they, they don't hide very and, well. And, I mean, there's a big gold. dangerous freeway that you were on too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were, well, they weren't that low, but they were mm. pretty low. Yeah, well, we saw them very clearly yeah, yeah. Awesome. so your, your job here is obviously full on and, and yes. a big job do you ever get yep. time to travel around and oh, all the time and like I sort of joked that you know whether it's work or play it's my life is zoos you know I'm I'm very proud to be a, a zoo guy I'm, I'm proud of this industry you know I'm not condoning the past or bad operators but I think that's in every single industry but We've just come in leaps and bounds in the last few decades and, you know, it's become a real culture within our industry that we all put the animals first. You know, we're in this for the right reason and I think that really shows. So I just love travelling everywhere to sort of see zoos because everybody's doing something better than we are and the best ideas are always stolen. So, you know, there's so much I can learn and I love both doing it just as a, a visitor, so just to go and walk through a zoo and to see it as a visitor would, but also then, you know, letting the directors know that I'm coming so that I can then talk to them and and drag out of them all the information that they've got. So, yeah, around Australia, and in the last little while, I've been spending quite a lot of time in the States. And so we've developed quite a a strong relationship with San Diego Zoo. So we even sent... um, They've just started a new Australian section at the Safari Park, and so Featherdale sent birds over there for them to... Yeah, that's add what to I know collection. the uh, head reptile keeper there, Brett Baldwin. Yeah, um, yeah, great zoo. Apparently, we'd love to get over there. We were speaking about that last week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, and I mean, most people don't even realise it's it's two zoos. You know, they have the Metropolitan Zoo and then the Safari Park. You know, their Safari Park seventeen hundred hectares. Yeah, like it's wow. enormous. It's huge. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so no, huge. it's very impressive, and, and I mean. They've got runs on the board with some amazing species. And so from that, what's really great is that it's also generated good associations. So people want to be attached to them now. So I think they find it a lot easier than most to, you know, come up with great, huge projects that no one else would dare to. 
and people then want to be attached, whether it just be financial or any sort of skill sets. They are very good at attracting more good people into these big projects that, that can't be done by small institutes often. Yeah, it's awesome the way that zoos have come along because as we know like 50 years 100 years ago they were concrete jungles they were bad they used to have humans on show human enclosures and things like that so we've come a long way but yeah it's great that some of these zoos have split like london zoo did they they made whipsnade or or bought whipsnade and moved their big animals up there because they knew they didn't have the space stuff like that i think it's just great now and and it is good and i think that when you know, when someone makes a brave step like that, and so I guess one of those species that's talked about a lot now is elephants, mm. and so often with with urban zoos, it was a really great decision that we kind of went, well, they need space, and I mean, that's quite often, and the same is happening in Australia, that, you know, the, the 10-year plans, if we sort of talk about that with most major zoos, you know, when you, you design grand plans and, you know, nothing happens quickly, you know, you can't do things quickly if you want it to be done well the idea is to move some of those big species out to what we class as our sort of safari type parks Mm. and i think it's a wonderful step and i think it's very brave because it certainly was done for the animal not the visitor as such because the visitor is upset that now now they can't go and see them there there's not an elephant there and adelaide are just moving their giraffes i think out of the, the city zoo It's funny, you, you get it at Adelaide and you get it at Monado, you know, yep. Uh, yep. where people go to Adelaide and there are some people that are oh, whinged about a big animal being there, so you put it out at Monado and they whinge that we pay to get in and there's no elephant. it's not there no anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Can't win. <laughs> and I mean, that's where we have to be very careful that we're not, you know, a lot of those comments are the outliers and it's often those ones that get more voice or more paid attention to because... You know, quite often when people go home and they've had a wonderful day, they don't use social media. It's yeah. the people that have got an axe to grind yeah, that do. And then as an industry, sometimes we become a bit too knee-jerk and just pander to that outlier comment. And I think it's it's wonderful to see, you know, very brave directors and managers and curators making those decisions that might mean that they'll get some backlash on social media or, or you know, normal media and... They're doing it for the genuine species, and I, I think it's wonderful. Yeah, because I guess we never go online and say, it was great to go to Adelaide Zoo and not see elephants. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> so just... So you're right, yeah. yeah it, it, and it's it was, the wind. It is great to not go and see the poor elephants in a yep. small exhibit. So well, when yeah. I was a kid, they used to have an oval, and the elephant would pull you around the oval in a cart, which is interesting. Yep. Yeah, we used to be able to ride them at Colchester Zoo. We had Zoe and Zola, two elephants, and you could you could go and ride them. If you sponsored them, you got to ride on the elephants. Yeah, wow. But I would hate for elephants to be lost to the zoos, though, because they are such an amazing animal when you actually get to be there and be in their presence and feel that enormity and just be touched by their very existence. I would hate for, for us to pander to those people that believe that zoos can't actually keep them well because i don't believe that Mm. i think that we certainly can we can uh you know look after every part of that animal's well-being whether it be it's emotional it's mental it's physical help we we are smart enough to do it well and to give them everything that they need and quite often i think the missing piece was just space space yeah and by by adding that space it means that we can have the social dynamics that the elephant needs to have and we can do it well Mm. so i certainly hope that we don't get so knee-jerk that we decide that we shouldn't because I believe that we can and we can do it very well. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I agree. And the open plain type places are a great place. Absolutely, yeah. Where, where space isn't an issue. We certainly couldn't do it at Featherdale. No. You could only get away with two or three here. <laughs> That's right. No more. Free, free ranging. <laughs> Nothing else. Very um, pick me elephants. <laughs> when you've travelled around looking at different zoos, what, what are some of the things, other things that have stood out to you? Oh, look, I still think, and again, to sort of talk about San Diego, because I there's so much about it that I've really loved the underwater viewing hippos I remember when I first went there in 2005 and I could have sat there all day because to me at that stage and it's a while ago now I was very much still being amazed at what we could do in zoos and that was the first time I'd ever sort of been able to watch hippos underwater doing what they they do you know at that time here in Australia it was big open paddocks I suppose and they had huge water bodies but you didn't see what was going on so it was lost to you that that's actually where a hippo is a hippo is underwater so that was one of the real standouts for me and I think it's amazing I think every zoo has that type of enclosure where other zoo professionals will walk in and go far out I never thought that was possible I'm doing that yeah I've seen a similar thing somewhere with polar bears yeah, yeah. Where you've got yep. the glass and the polar bears. Yep. Well, again, so in Australia, when, when SeaWorld first made that huge investment to build for polar bears, I'm, I'm sure people thought they were mad because it, just the temperature on the Gold Coast is, is far warmer than where you would find polar bears. But, you know, they were able to create an amazing environment there. And, you know, again, the same. I, I think that they are displayed very well in some major zoos around the world. Yeah, I see your point. I've worked with platypus for about eight years. Oh, it's hardly the um, same. It's not You're the same. polar bears. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'd be a tour guide and we'd be looking at platypus swimming and then they'd disappear. Yep. And I'd be interpreting what they're doing because I, that's what I was told they did. Yep. Um, and then we uh, went to a zoo um, yesterday. The, uh, the reptile park. Australia reptile yeah. park. And they had their platypus enclosure and you could, I could actually see it doing... What I was telling people it had yeah, been right. doing, <laughs> catching things with its, you know, yep. beak, it was quite interesting. We stood and watched great. that for a little while, didn't we? That was really interesting. It was fantastic. When you talked about the hippo exhibit, yep. was that like one of the things I always wish was that the sitting area, like where we're sitting right now, we mm-hmm. can look into this exhibit. Yep. And sometimes there's a really interesting exhibit, but it's kind of in a corridor and you're kind yeah. of shuffling through. But wouldn't yep. it be lovely if you were sitting down having a meal watching hippos be hippos? Cool. Oh, absolutely. Wow. I don't want much. That would be amazing. It'd be cool, though, wouldn't mm. it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think Cairns Aquarium have a restaurant like in the middle of the aquarium where you watch all your fish in these huge, great big aquariums, I think. Encourage people to hang around a bit. Yeah. Well, it does. It, it And it, if you just stop and... And, I mean, we're terrible in this society now. Like, to stop doing what you're doing for any amount of time is, is almost sacrilegious. But if you can stop and just watch just for a moment... Yeah, some of those things that will unfold in front of you, it'll, it'll keep you there for longer. It's mm. true, but when you see something really exciting, you get your phone out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, this is amazing. I want to film this on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all yeah. do it. Of course. Yeah, you get your phone out and you put it up. Oh, where'd it go? <laughs> yeah. It's you just lost the moment. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Any travel plans for, uh, for the rest of the year, mate? Around our country, absolutely. One of the really exciting things is like I said, is talking to other zoo professionals. So I actually want to be heading to Adelaide in the next month or so because we work pretty pretty closely with the zoo on Kangaroo Island. And I just, I mean, it's just an amazing place. So any chance to go down there and, 
and Sam, talk shop. Sam. Yeah, Sam. Yep. Yep. Hello, Sam. He's a wonderful guy. He is. I've got a quoll named after Sam. Yeah, right. What I got from Sam. <laughs> no, he, he's awesome. You know, we we talk constantly because, you know, again, he was he was fairly young getting into it and was happy to ask questions, and I just love that. You know, it's always the worst thing when people have preconceived ideas or figure that they know or couldn't possibly be told any different. Whereas, he's just got a great attitude about it, and he loves animals and wants to. Wants his zoo to be a great experience. He's a good guy. Very humble guy. He stayed the night at our place um, when he came to the mainland uh, a couple of months back, and I had a couple of my volunteers there, and he sat down and answered all their questions and was very yep. open and very humble. Yeah. And for a zoo owner, like that's an amazing quality. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm sure all your volunteers would love to be Sam. Like <laughs> to one day be able to own a zoo, like that's a that's a dream. So to be able to share time with him, it's awesome. Mate, love the park. Love what you do. Thanks Thank you. so much for having us. No, it's my absolute pleasure. I, awesome. I love being able to walk around this place and look at it again through some fresh eyes. I, I still enjoy it. I love be it. very proud of it. It's awesome. So much to see. Feathered Old Wildlife Park. Um, thank you, Chad. And my pleasure. Guys, thank you for listening.